Recently, one pastor was talking about the cost of disobeying the government in order to remain faithful to proclaim Christ. This guy is sold out for Jesus, much like the pastor that I just prayed about was, we assume. He had made up his mind that he would, in fact, disobey the government because he submits to the one and only king that is Christ. And he knew, of course, that in doing so, in disobeying the government, it could cost him a lot. It could lead to his imprisonment. You know how he responded, right? Most would be afraid, maybe a little bit fearful. But in the face of potential imprisonment, he responded, well, I've never had a prison ministry before, but I look forward to having one. Where others might run, he was opportunistic about this. Opportunistic about the entire thing, knowing that he would be faithful by God's grace, whether preaching in public at the church building or preaching to inmates behind bars. What an awesome modern day example of faithfulness. A faithful follower of Christ and faithful witness to Christ for us today. And his resounding example is actually an echo of many biblical examples of what it looks like to simply follow after Jesus Christ. But even as awesome as this modern day example is, we have an even more special example from our passage today. We get the chance to look at the very first Christian witness who gave himself to the death, faithfully following Jesus, faithfully witnessing to Jesus. Turn with me to the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Acts 6, 1 to 15. Our example today comes from not an apostle, which we have been looking at in the book of Acts, but from a man, a a servant or deacon of the church, uh, and he was certainly known to be a servant. I mean, let me just give you a little bit of background. Up until chapter 6, we've mostly looked at the apostles, used of God to lay the foundation of the church through the preaching of the gospel, used in a very unique way. And we've looked especially at Peter. Um, But in chapter 6, our attention shifts away from the apostles, and it lands on others whom God uses to build his church through the preaching of the gospel and even through the working of miracles. And over the next few chapters here, we'll see that the gospel moves from Jerusalem, and then it pushes outward, Judea, Samaria, and then even to the ends of the earth. That really is the structure in many ways of the book of Acts. And you can see that structure kind of laid out there, or the charge in Jesus' charge to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, here we, we, we're right on the cusp of about to be pushing out, pushing further into all Judea and Samaria. Over the next few sermons that I'll be preaching, we'll look at the example of the very first martyr of the church, Stephen the deacon. Stephen the deacon, and this is kind of like the first thing that we, that we uh, draw our attention to, Stephen the deacon, kind of you can think of it as, I guess, point number one. We were introduced to him last week where the church was facing mission distraction, not from persecution this time, not from character issues from within the church, but from the threat of disunity. There was potential disunity, potential division, as one group of widows was not receiving the daily distribution of food, but, but the, another group was. So there's, you know, potential division. Potential deepening division, in fact, and disunity. 
And the apostles, of course, they, they see this need. They want to take care of the need while still carving out the necessary space for the preaching of Jesus, the very message that laid the foundation of the church. And they lead the congregation uh, to select, you look there at verse 3, if you're in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. And who leads that list there in verse 3? Or verse 5, it is Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So you see there, even there, right, the, the, the attention is shifting to this kind of, this guy who's not an apostle, just Stephen. This sets up the account in our passage, and then we see in chapter 7, this account of Stephen, faithful follower of Christ, faithful witness to Christ, even to his death. And so he is a martyr. He is a martyr, which actually originally simply means witness. So the Greek word for, right, for Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, you could translate it, you will be my martyrs. It, it, back then, it really just meant witness. Today, it's, it's come to mean one who dies for the faith. And in both senses, here we have Stephen, an example. Look at verse 8 as our attention shifts to Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing wonders and signs among the people. God was using him in a special way. Jesus had empowered him by the Spirit to work these miracles just as he did the apostles. And this, of course, as you know from Acts chapter 2, was fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy where God would pour out his Spirit and he, would, he himself would work these signs and wonders on earth, drawing the attention to Christ, the author of life, who saves, who heals. These miracles um, were, were not just drawing attention, of course, to Christ's healing power. Let me underscore that. It was drawing his, his uh, power to save. They pointed to this Christ who is, the, again, the author of life, God's chosen servant. The apostles, right, they, in their acting, they acted in Christ's powers and worked miracles. And then in that very moment, as people saw, people witnessed, they were to speak of his saving power. God uses Stephen powerfully. It says there that he was full of grace and that God was bearing much fruit from him. That's the way that that word is used in this context here that God was bearing much fruit from him. Uh, when he and the apostles would heal, right, obviously loads of people would witness it. They would see it. They couldn't deny it. And then the preachers would preach Christ. And they would point them to Christ who saves from sin. Thousands of people became Christians in these very early chapters of the book of Acts. If you're visiting with us, you can see how the, the heralding of the gospel is so important in all of this. And if you miss this, you'll kind of, you'll kind of lose the significance of what's going on here. Right? God the Creator made us to be in a relationship with Him, but man has broken that relationship through our sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've all rebelled against Him, right? That's just fact according to the Bible. So what these Christians do is they're just simply heralding God's answer that reconciliation can be had through Jesus Christ, the Savior who died on the cross for sins. Three days later, He gets up from the dead, showing that now all those who repent and believe, this death sentence for our sin no longer hangs over us. That's what they're to do. This is the awesome, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God's people are to go out to the ends of the earth heralding. That's what Stephen's doing. That's what the apostles did. They're taking the good news of Jesus and spreading it. That salvation can be found if you, even you here today, non-Christian, repent of your sins for rebelling against Jesus, rebelling against the one and only author of life, and turning to Him as the Savior. Through repenting, and believing on him, throwing yourself at his feet through faith, believing in him and his work. Jesus says, you will be forgiven, saved. There's no name under heaven by which man must be saved.
That's why it's so important what they're doing here, this heralding. It's, just not, it's not simply just sharing news about some dude that they made up, which today people are going to tell you that's what Christians did and, and whatnot. This is the heralding of truth. So that's why it's so important. And you see there from a spiritual perspective, from God's perspective, it's booming. Right? Thousands of people again are becoming Christians. But from a worldly perspective, we know that bad things happen when the apostles heal and preach in the name of Jesus. We've seen these bad things in these early chapters. The authorities arrest them. They interrogate the Christians. They beat them. But here in Stephen's case, we actually have an escalation. We have an escalation in that his persecutors stone him to death. But make no mistake here, this account of Stephen was not recorded that we would feel sorry for him. Even though it's a sad situation. It's not recorded that we would feel sorry for him. This story, through and through, is an absolute encouragement. And I hope to make that case here. Stephen is an example of, once again, a faithful follower and faithful witness for Christ. And in every single step of the opposition, right? The opposition comes at every single step, kind of like in these different stages, and he's faithful in every single one of them. I pray that as we look at Stephen, we're going to be encouraged this morning through the example that we have right here before us. And we're going to do this. For the rest of the time, we're going to look first at opposition. Actually, never mind the first. Let's just say this is point number two here. Opposition. And then point number three, we have Stephen's example. Point number one, we just looked at Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Point number two, we look at the opposition. And then point number three, we look at Stephen's example. Here's point number one, opposition. Sorry, point number two. Point number two. Verse nine, look there. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those who were from Cilicia and Asia. Here's the point. What did they do? They rose up and disputed with Stephen. This is the first stage of this opposition, if you want to call it that, the first stage. You have disputation. They're debating. This is called disputation. Um, just a little bit of background here. Jews who are more Greek in culture, right? They're worshiping at this synagogue, synagogue of the freedmen, most likely. Maybe the majority were slaves or for former slaves. But they're really from different parts of that area. Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. Actually, they're from different parts of the Mediterranean, worshiping there at this synagogue. They rose up and they entered into this debate with Stephen. Well, what did they dispute? They're certainly not disputing the miracles. You can't dispute that, Right? crippled guy that many thousands of people knew that he was crippled from birth then he's changed he's now walking around you can't dispute that what they were actually disputing were his truth claims jesus uh, sorry stephen's truth claims about jesus if you're to take some time and read the rest of the passage read chapter seven we have a really good idea about what he was saying about jesus so these folks, these Jews, they dispute with him, again, about Christ, Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The one in whom all God's promises in the Old Testament find their fulfillment. And then they kind of land here on two aspects of it, the temple and the law. Christ, the fulfillment of the temple, Christ, the fulfillment of the law. Again, we're going to look more about this as we walk through chapter 7, um, the next time I preach. But for now, just know that that's what we talk about. We'll talk about a little bit here in this sermon. We've seen from earlier chapters in the book of Acts that Christ is, in fact, God's chosen one. His chosen servant, as it says in the book of Isaiah, to take away the sins 
of his people. As he dies as a substitute. This was prophesied of in the Old Testament. This great, grand, glorious day when man would be freed from their sins through the work of the servant who is the substitute. And it was in Christ that these prophecies had been fulfilled. Not only was he prophesied of in the Old Testament, Jesus himself, right, when he comes, he's teaching these things plainly, evidently. Matthew 5, 17, I have come not to abolish the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it. Right, God gave law for uh, his people that they would live after him, that they would live a righteous life. Of course, though, God knew that the people would continue sinning. And so what was the function of the law? Well, it certainly revealed his holy character, but it also was to lead them. It exposes their sin and, and pushes them towards the very one, the only one who could actually fulfill the law. So Christ came, lived a righteous life that we could not. He fulfilled the law's demands for sinners. How awesome is that? And then you also see in relation to the temple, right? We looked at the law, now we look at the temple. Jesus came and he said, one greater than the temple is here. That's me, he's basically saying. He's basically telling the people, look, if you think that the temple is where you go to meet God, well, yes, in former times, yes. But guess what? In me, one greater than the temple is here. God's eternal son in the flesh. If you want to meet God, here I am. God, the eternal son, come to tabernacle among men, as it says in John chapter 1. So Stephen and the apostles, they're just simply teaching Christ. They're just teaching what Christ taught. Just as Christ taught about the temple and the law, it's interesting, his persecutors focus on that as well. They said that he taught against God's holy place as well. That he taught against God's law. Same with Stephen. Look there in verse 13. This guy speaks words against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law. Basically, he's just saying that these, this guy, Stephen, is speaking against God himself. And so it's blasphemous. And the dispute most likely concerned, once again, the Jews' misunderstanding of the necessity of the temple. It was over... And they thought wrongly about the perpetuity of the Mosaic law, how it should always exist. And they missed Christ the fulfillment. Look at the result, though. In all their efforts to debate, look at the result there in verse 10. But they could not withstand this, the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You think, of course not. He's speaking in the very spirit of God, in the very spirit of Christ. This is what happened when the apostles, and then now Stephen spoke as they were filled with the Spirit of God. They spoke divinely inspired words about Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They spoke as they were divinely inspired by the Spirit of Christ himself. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen, right? So Jesus, he looks into the future and knows exactly what his apostles are going to be struggling with. And this is what he says. He says, when they drag you in front of rulers to interrogate you. Here's my quotation, right, from Jesus' words. He says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none, no one, none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus told of this day that they would be confounded by the wisdom and the spirit with which his people would speak. Because, why is that? Because God himself would give him the words. What we see happening with Stephen is a actually direct fulfillment of Luke 21, Jesus' words. We're going to spend more time looking at this a little bit later, but know this. 
The fact that they cannot resist Stephen's wisdom is because they fight against God himself. And in their unbelief, they are clueless. But uh, this is a leadership lesson for us all. Really a persecution lesson for us all. After the disputation doesn't work, what do they resort to? Just look at the passage. What do they resort to? You can think of this being opposition stage number two. Opposition stage number two. Uh, right? They're, they are out reason. They're out wisdom. So then they resort to underhanded tactics. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said... It's like they're instigating others. They're, they're filling men's minds with, with garbage. And then they're egging them on to go on to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. The accusation here is developed in, in uh, verses 13 and 14. You know, you're speaking against the temple, which I mentioned earlier, God's holy place. That, that basically is to speak against God. When you speak against Moses and his law, that, that's, that's speaking against God. This should remind us of, of course, Jesus who was accused of blasphemy. And just as it ended in execution for Christ, so it would with Stephen. Right? We know where this is heading. But the instigation doesn't stop with these men. The opposition grows. Look there at verse 12. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him. And what did they do? They seized him and brought him before the council. There's, here we have arrest. And then in the next verse, you have accusation. Look there at verse 13. They set up false witnesses. So it goes from egging on people to actually setting them up. And then what do they say? This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say, right? We have heard him this time. It's no longer just this man always does these things. Now as we've heard him say these things, that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And in these verses from 12 to 14, we have the next stage of opposition. Here we have arrest and accusation. Instigation then leads to arrest and accusation. Whereas before, again, the people were saying, we have heard him say these things. Now there are false witnesses set up. These men say, these guys say this all the time. We know it for sure. Jesus would destroy the temple. Jesus is going to change the customs. That's the, that's the, the grenade that they throw at Stephen here. Obviously, speaking against God, God's temple, God's law with disdain and disrespect is never good. That's sinful. But these accusers, they get it wrong. Just as they refuse to believe Jesus as the fulfillment of the law in the temple, so they refuse to believe Stephen. Again, Jesus, of course, did not have disrespect for the law. Jesus is the Lord of the law. Let me repeat these verses again. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then again, as great as the temple was, instituted by God, designed by God, it was where God had said, where God drew near in His grace to His people. It was just this inanimate structure which couldn't be destroyed, which can be destroyed. It was great, of course, because of what God was doing through it. But who needs the temple when the Son of God has drawn near in Christ? Again, one greater than the temple is here, Matthew chapter 12. This is what John Stott wrote. It's not that the temple and the law had never been divine gifts in the first place. It's that they would find their God intended fulfillment in Him, the Messiah. Jesus was and is Himself the replacement of the temple and the fulfillment of other law. But the people don't want to hear it. And so they make Stephen walk the same path of Christ. 
to execution. So you see there, disputation leads to instigation, leads to arrest and accusation. And then finally, last stage of opposition, you have his execution. If you turn over to chapter 7, verses 58 and 60, you'll see that there. After making his defense, they kill him. They take him out of the city and they stone him. Verse 54, look there, it says, They got so enraged at him that they took him out of the city and stoned him to death. Again, we're going to look at that a little bit later. But while this is a sobering account, and it is sad in and of itself, Stephen is an encouraging example, again, of faithful follower, faithful witness. Faithful follower, faithful witness. Let's turn now and look at point number three and try and apply this, leaning into certain aspects of this example here. We're going to look now at Stephen's encouraging example. He's steadfast in his boldness. He's steadfast in his boldness. Look there at verse 10. It says that they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. It's obvious that even though they are disputing, I mean, imagine if your friends come, they they join you, they approach you and confront you, and they're calling you out on what they think is wrong. Well, he's he's just speaking of the gospel. He's standing for Jesus Christ. Right? This account could have read... That during the instigation or the disputation, the arrest and the false accusations, he ran away. It could have read, he turned and betrayed Christ and his disciples and he feared man. But it doesn't say that. Chapter 7, again, we have a summary of what he said to his accusers and persecutors. He tells them that God himself, to God himself, the physical temple was not ultimate. As, and ironic as it was, it was they It was they who disobeyed God's law. And then just like Jesus, he faithfully, faithfully calls them to repent. Repent for rejecting God, his prophets, and Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh. He is bold. So the question for you guys is, in what moments do you run away? Maybe here and even in the last week. Where the perfect opportunity for us to share Christ arises, but then we run away. Maybe out of fear, you you don't speak as much as you ought. Maybe you backpedal. Maybe you soften the truth of God. Maybe what you say doesn't even look near what what God says are the main components of the gospel. And so you could be withstood because you're not even speaking in the Spirit. Instead, maybe, maybe you know what it's like to speak to please man or to gain their get in their good graces, and so you're not so bold, not so faithful? Stephen is not only bold, he is faithful. He is steadfast in his faithfulness. We're going to look at this next week, but he's faithful in the teaching, right? He knows that they're already ticked off, and yet he speaks clearly what's in Scripture. But he is steadfast in, in actually remaining a witness, Not only is he bold, but he's steadfast in remaining the witness. Um, And in this, we see this great example, right? Remember Luke 21? I want you to turn there with me now. Go to Luke 21. And go ahead and look at 
verse 12, which was the verse that I mentioned earlier. In this section, right, again, Jesus warns about various wars and things that are coming in the end. And then he tells his disciples there in verse 12, before these things get worse, he says, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then look what he says in verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Isn't that interesting? He says, look, this is what they're going to do. Right? Things are going to get worse, but before this, they're going to lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you over. They know exactly where it's going to go. But he says, this will be your opportunity, guys, to bear witness for my name's sake. And then he turns to say, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's incredible. Jesus says, look, you Christians, I'll give you the opportunity. He says, look, guys, I'll give you an audience. And then, of course, he says, look, guys, by my spirit, I'll give you strength and ability All you have to do is speak. So encouraging. So encouraging because in our flesh, and I'm sure if you just review your own Christian history, you know what it means to maybe run from difficulty. Isn't that what Moses tried to do? Where God calls him? God says, look, I'm going to do these awesome, amazing things, and I want you to go before the king of Egypt... And I want you to speak to him. And then I'm going to work these wonders. And then everybody's going to know that I am God. And then he says, but I'm not eloquent. I know you're the creator of everything, the universe and all that other stuff. But hey, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak so good. How does God respond in the book of Exodus? The Lord of the universe straight up says, who gave man his mouth? I will be with your mouth. I will tell you what to say. And then I'll also give you signs and wonders. And then you speak. Stephen and his opposition here, think about that. And then think about how Jesus says, that will be your opportunity to bear witness. God had already given everybody there in that time. The greatest sign and wonder through Jesus' own death on the cross for sin and then his resurrection three days later. I mean, forget the plagues. Here you have the resurrection of Jesus. And now all he has to do is just speak. So he seizes the opportunity. To other people, maybe even to some of us in our past, running would make the most earthly sense. They're going to be dragging us before rulers and kings and governors. Persecution sounds more like an earthly hell, right? Guaranteed difficulty. But for Stephen, there's a mind shift that's taken place. In that bad moment, he thinks less about bad things that might be done to him and more about the good news that Christ wants him to bring to others through the witnessing, through the speaking of the saving work of Jesus in the gospel. For those of you who who know what it's like to maybe fear or run and things like this, and to some degree we all do this, if your mission is your own safety and security in that moment of opposition, Christ's commission only goes so far. Christ's lordship only means so much. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. That only goes so far because your mission is safety and security. But you look at Stephen here. For all of us who struggle with the fear of man, here Stephen, again, is our awesome encouragement. God says, look, I'll give you the opportunity. I'll give you the audience. I'll give you the power. I'll give you the message. Just speak. And this is what Stephen does. For Stephen, his mission was to honor the king. He goes where Christ calls him. He speaks what Christ gives him, that is the gospel. And he holds out the Savior. He takes Christ's commission seriously because really he trusts in God. And so he is opportunistic about that bad situation, so to speak. He's opportunistic. He thinks less about the bad that could be done to him and more about the good that could be done through him in Christ as his witness. Christian, are you opportunistic with your situations and with the people that God has placed you around? And I'm not talking about those who are friendly to you, those who actually really like you, those who chase after you. I'm talking about even to the unkind. Even to those who don't treat you right. Are those who don't treat you right only those whom you would love to treat you better and then that's it? Or are they also those whom God, those whom God desires that you bless through the gospel? Think about this. To those whom you interact with that seem really proud towards you, have you considered that maybe, just maybe, God wants the proud here in Los Angeles, in your lives, to know that there's actually a better way through your speaking and your example? And that better way is humility in Christ. To those who are unkind to you, or at least you feel like they have been, have you considered that maybe God could use your kind and Christ-like demeanor and then kind words in speaking about your Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, to let them know that there is a better way to life, and that is walking after the author of life, To those who seem bent on relieving, let's say, their own guilt and shame and failures by punishing you. Have you ever considered that maybe God wants them to know freedom from sin under the lordship of Christ? That he wants their guilt wiped away, just as yours has been, as you witness to them in Christ. As you speak about a hope that they do not know. We could, we could just go on and on. These are people that God brings across our paths that we might witness to, to them. That we might speak about Jesus and His saving work on the cross. Do you even see sometimes these, these people that you interact with as opportunities to bear witness? Or do they just give you a living hell? And you just rather be done with them? The Apostle Peter, who we have every reason to think was in close contact with Stephen, wrote this in his first letter. It's very fitting for the situation. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. And then in, in the same letter, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among others honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's not see your good deeds and then go to hell. It's see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see that there in the answering as we hold out hope, and then even in the way in which we do it, and in the manner in which we live our Christian lives, he has the salvation of sinners on their minds. Everybody who watches us, that, friends, is being opportunistic. Like Stephen, like the apostles, sold out for Christ and the mission of the church. Again, Stephen and the apostles here, they have a big view of God. We've talked about this in the past. They know that the king of heaven has come down and saved them from their sins. Once they were estranged from God, but in Christ, he has made them, taken them to himself and made them full-fledged citizens of the kingdom. Once they lived for their own pleasure as if they were gods unto themselves. It's the very nature of sin. But now in Christ, they know true meaning and mission. They know true purpose in living for Christ, God's chosen servant. They know the salvation that he holds out to all And so they want to be part of that, just as they know it for themselves. This was their mission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and all Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Here we have this awesome example in Stephen, faithful follower, faithful witness, who is steadfast even to his death, his execution. He is steadfast in loving his enemies, even in execution. Even though he was dragged before the ruler of Israel, the rulers of Israel, he witnessed to Christ, the true, rule, true, true ruler, the true king, who died on the cross for sins, and then, of course, who got up from the dead, and who is at the right hand of God. A term of authority and position as Christ shares the throne of God. And it is this Son of God who fills his vision. So in the midst of like when people are angry at you for Jesus or for doing good, who is it that fills your vision? Is it your enemies because you have a target on them? Or is it Christ? Christ, is it him who is the authority? The one that you can entrust yourself to. The one who is looking over everything. Look there at 756. 756. Who is it that fills Stephen's vision before his death? Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen knows that Christ rules over all, sees all, knows all as king. And even will judge those who stand against him. But what's so instructive is that he doesn't witness to Christ with a vindictive spirit. He shares Christ even in that moment, wanting even his persecutors to know for themselves the saving grace of Christ. Just as Stephen has a vision of Christ before him in his very last moments. So he has Christ's forgiveness on his heart in those very last moments. You remember what Christ, as he was hanging on the cross, prayed for those who killed him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look at verses 59 and 60 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, 59 and 60. You see Stephen here following faithfully after Jesus. And as they were stoning him, He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
If you flip back to Luke chapter 20, what is it that makes Stephen walk in the footsteps of Jesus? What is it that makes him walk after the footsteps of Jesus here, right? He is our example, so we want to ask the same question for ourselves. He's a faithful follower of Christ, a faithful witness to Christ. What is it? You look there in 21, Luke chapter 21. Let's start at verse 14 and kind of wrap up everything right here. You see there, Jesus says, let's start in 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. Now here's what makes Stephen walk the path of Christ? You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Praise the Lord for that. What is it that makes Stephen walk in Jesus' footsteps? What is it that can help us walk in their footsteps? It's because at the end of the day, we trust God to be faithful. Just as Jesus died and got up from the dead, so we too, those who are in Christ, those who believe on Christ and have faith on Him, who repent of their sins and turn on Him, we know that there's a better world to live for, not this one. This world is temporary. But we look forward to a city built not with hands, but built by the grace of God in Christ. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So the question for you, Christian, is what's worth dying for? You're dying. Everybody dies. The question is, what is worth dying for? Are you opportunistic with this life? Because you know for a fact that Christ rules and reigns and is, in fact, the Lord and Savior who redeems and delivers and reconciles you to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do indeed thank you for the example we have here in Stephen, who is a faithful follower, a faithful witness. God, we pray that you would reveal to us where we lack trust in you. Though we may claim that you are the Lord of the universe, that you have the power to get up from the dead, the power to raise the dead as well, certainly the power to heal, definitely the power to save and secure our future lives, our eternal lives, but yet we lack the boldness to speak of you. Lord, we pray that you would help us examine our own lives. Help us trust in you. Help us have a big vision of who you are according to the Spirit, based in your word. Help us remember that you are the greatest authority. And in you we can trust. We know you love us. We know, Lord, that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would help us lean into that very promise as we take the gospel to those around us. In your name we pray. Amen.